0: This episode of History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast, is brought to you by Frame Nation. Frame Nation is your one stop for any kind of framing, displaying needs you may need. They've got an incredible staff, super friendly. They'll make you excited, make your, make your day a little brighter, and they'll also help you with any kind of display needs you might need. Um, museum quality. If you're looking for something a little less traditional um, they can definitely find you something within their price within your price range um, and something that will complement whatever it is you're trying to display right also checked out the um uh the website i was just poking around It's um they're voted uh, among richmond's favorite frame shops by the readers of our home magazine 2011 12 and 13 let's keep that going for 14 should be fantastic um Always have a uh, um, uh, master certified picture framer there uh, on staff. Um, go down to Frame Nation. Uh, they are at uh, 11 South 15th Street. Um, they are on uh, Framenation.net. Um, but don't go to the site. Go in and talk to them. That'll be fantastic. And follow them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, you know, Google Plus. Wherever you follow people, follow them. I do. Frame Nation. This is History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Jeff Major. I have Jason Spellman on the show. He's been uh, a historical interpreter for uh, the National Park Service, the Richmond National uh, Battlefield Parks, um, and historic, uh, Pamplin Historical Park. He also writes a, a blog, historical blog, uh, called The Significant Word, Musings of a Rogue Historian. Uh, that can be found at significantword.wordpress.com, uh, but he is also a historical reenactor. Uh, he is involved with a group called the Liberty Rifles. You can check out the Liberty Rifles uh, at libertyrifles.org. Uh, as you'll hear in the conversation, um, that's mostly what we talk about is you know reenacting and what it actually means um, you know, mostly hanging out in the civil war battlefields. Uh, we actually end up talking a great deal about what they eat. Um, something you don't hear a whole lot about. Um, but you know, personally, if I'm going to go fight in a battle, I'd like a pretty good meal beforehand. And I, and I think that was pretty rare. Um, especially when you, you get into, you know, what these guys were actually eating. Um, I don't think a sandwich would be too much to ask for, but, um, Tough times, man. I mean, it's you know, you really get into how horrible and uh, how how really hard it would have been um, to be a Civil War soldier. The uh, they do take it much more seriously than a lot of uh, reenacting groups. You know, it's not just camping; uh, they're going to be marching and you know actually living by the the standards that a Civil War soldier would have lived by. But before I get into this conversation with uh, Jason Spellman. I do want to acknowledge uh that Richmond did lose one of its you know one of the most influential artists, one of the most important on the the national I mean, the international stage for that matter, uh Dave Brocky, definitely in the top five um, you know most influential artists, whether you agreed with his performances, whether you agreed with his messages, that's not really relevant. Uh you know, incredibly important to to the world art scene. Um, you know, Dave Brocky is better known to the world as Oduris Arungus. Uh, you know, the leader of the uh, metal group Guar, but it is far larger than just a, a metal group. I mean, it was, a you know, an art collective. Uh, and you can actually listen back to the conversation I did with uh, Bob Gorman. And uh, Bob Gorman, you know, he came into the group only a couple years after Dave Brockie, you know, formed the group in the, the mid-80s. And, um, you know, it's a sad, sad loss sad loss but go back and check that out if you haven't heard it if you've never listened to the show before history replays today is conversations with historians authors uh, richmonders that have lived through crazy you know interesting times something something noteworthy that we could talk about and it's released on the first and the 15th of every month it's available on itunes stitcher uh, tune in anywhere where you listen to podcasts or at history replays today.org the the next episode will be about the history of maymont park which uh which is really interesting uh, and and if you are listening to this on um, itunes uh, it's come to my attention just recently um, from uh, paul crumish brought it to my attention he's on twitter at paul crumish p a u l c r u m l i s h that all the episodes aren't actually available on iTunes it's only the last ten I do think I have that sorted out. We'll see when I post this one. Hopefully, there'll be 11. Um, Haven't quite figured out how to get the the first uh, eight um, still available on on, uh, iTunes. Um, But we'll work that out. Let me try and get that going on. Um, But definitely support our sponsors, uh, Frame Nation. Definitely support River City Segs, which is the premier Segway tour company in Virginia. River City Segs offers the, the only indoor Segway training area only Segway specific training area in Virginia always striving for historical uh, accuracy to um, you know really help you get out on a Segway and actually engage the city um, see where these things happen uh, stand there glide by it and all while you're having a good time while you're riding a Segway and get ready because the Easter Seg Hunt is gonna be coming up hundreds of Easter eggs uh, that are good for free things from local companies hidden all around the city and then you can follow clues on Facebook uh, and Twitter from River City Segs, and on Twitter that's it at eight hundred four Segs, and do that. Go check it out. Uh, the Easter Seg Hunt. Uh, find out more information about River City Segs at RiverCitySegs com. And if you're looking for some special clues to the Easter Easter Seg Hunt, um, come take a tour with us on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of Easter weekend. Um, there'll be eggs hidden out all three days, and we'll get you those special clues going on. And always practice safe Segs. But I did start out asking Jason uh, about actually how he got into reenacting.
1: I would say just kind of at the beginning, the immediate response was seeing uh, not a reenactment, but a living history in my hometown, which was a timeline event. So there are people from a variety of different periods. Where's where your hometown? It's in Charlottesville. Charlottesville, Virginia. okay, yeah, yeah. So every year, I don't think it happens anymore, but every year they'd have this group in town had an annual event, which they showcased their different eras that they were most knowledgeable about. So there was, you know, a, a Revolutionary War group and a French and Indian uh, couple. Um, but what really kind of was got me interested in it was. Uh, later, a good friend of mine, who I, I had just been acquainted with when I went to this thing in 2005, um, he was... He had this setup that was uh, actually in a fountain that was, I mean, completely decked out as, like, a World War One trench. So he had oh, wow. sandbags, like, corrugated steel walls, a dugout. You know, it was all very compacted little thing, but it was mm-hmm. barbed wire, but it was supposed to kind of replicate the life of an American G.I. soldier in a trench and he, I mean, just listening to uh, this friend of mine, it uh, it was just really, I think it intrigues you, it's just like, wow, he's got this whole setup and he knows like almost everything, but I think more particularly what drew me was his way of kind of interpreting that, kind of Mm -hmm. having hundreds of people come and then like never missing a beat, just trying to, you know, just talk vocally Uh, Talk about kind of that and all of its description.
0: And so you do um, civil war stuff specifically, or you do the World War II, um, or you're doing you do whatever. You're like I'll reenact uh, whatever you got. Um, What do you focus on? And
1: also to go back on that real quickly, I think it's all it was driven by my interest in history before that. I mean, right? Sure, sure. As a younger kid and growing up from Virginia and then going to Jamestown and mm-hmm. Williamsburg and places like that. So I think, just to an- go back and answer your question, I mean, it just culminated into like, oh, there's there's someone I know that is doing this, I would like to do that too. Right, right. And so right. I got in through that group initially in 2005. Um, now, to answer your other question, um, primarily, you know, my, my mainstay is the American Civil War period. That's Mm -hmm. what I know the best. That's what I've learned the most about. But, again, to go back, I I was learning more about uh, the Great War. And Mm -hmm. so, actually, my first living history was with this guy who was doing, not Civil War, but World War I. And, uh, And we did this event, which happens every year still, in Jamestown, which is, again, like a timeline, which means it's various time periods. Mm -hmm. And everyone showcases their stuff. It's called Military Through the Ages. It's actually going to be next, this month, actually. Okay. Um, But my first living history was actually doing a signal core impression, and we had live pigeons. So we actually were writing messages, putting them in capsules, attaching them to live birds, homing Mm -hmm. pigeons, and then letting them go. And they flew to their loft in Mechanicsville. Wow. So that was... uh, Fairly unique experience right off the start. Yeah, and so that would have been World War Two. That was World War One. World War One. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, and then I just kind of went back and followed my particular interest in the Civil War. From that group, I, I joined a Civil War group that was actually like many mainstream groups, uh, one that was based off an original unit during the Civil War. So, ours was the Nineteenth Virginia Infantry. Okay. And it was our local hometown uh, infantry group, so they were there one hundred and fifty years ago, served most of the war were at Gettysburg, Antietam, mm-hmm. uh, surrendered at Appomattox and so a lot of like mainstream groups have you know a unit in particular sure sure, usually one based in their hometown, and then they show up at these large scale events as the nineteenth Virginia or whatever
0: so how's that work out where you um I mean, you'd borrow gear, or you just show up and, and get a coat, and the next year you got pants, or...
1: Well, I have to uh, kind of clarify this, because I don't think a lot of people realize it, uh, that are not sort of in the, in the know and not in the hobby. Mm-hmm. But, so, from the 19th Virginia, which, as I said, is a mainstream group, it's just, um, it's not very involved. Uh, I started to ask more questions about, like, what you had just said, like, you know, what are they wearing? What were they eating? Where are they going? And my mindset as I got, as I had been in that group for two or three years, started to ask more questions. Mm -hmm. So the people I was with weren't necessarily doing the same thing. Uh, To them, reenacting is just, and I don't think, I don't have anything against it, but to them it's it's a recreational activity. It's just it's camping, spending time with your friends and then like cooking lasagna in a Dutch oven at a <laughs> reenactment. Right. So for them it's not it's not totally self-involved like it is for other people. Mm-hmm. So I started to transition from a mainstream group into the group here uh which I'm currently in uh which is completely authentic. I mean okay. we the group the whole sort of how you get into it is one they're a great group of people and they were they you know they're easy to know uh, some of my closest friends now, but we all have this sort of mindset which is to do things as authentically as possible. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, you know before we go to event we try to research in incredible depth with numbers of people in the group, various components. So to give you an example, like last weekend we just had our first sort of. Yearly uh, living history At Point Lookout This is in Maryland mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, They recreated the barracks And the guard houses And the fort itself uh, For one particular area At Point Lookout And so there was a lot of work to be done um, You know, food for instance It's going to be different When you're garrisoned As a Union soldier in a fort Compared to a Union soldier Living in the field Right So they were issuing You know, your standard uh, for the Federals, hardtack, coffee, and usually beef that was boiled. Okay. So that would be in the field. A right. garrison event when you're in a fort, I mean, that's drastically different because it have been there a long time. Yeah. And it's just essentially uh, there's seriousness involved, but it's much more casual. It's very relaxed. They don't have the worry about battles because they're not out of battle. Right. So we, the person that put the event together had one person that was a cook company and they were researching. Well, they, you know, we know exactly what they know because they wrote about it. They had, you know, beans and and uh, beef and rice, and uh, we even brought in a sutler, which is a, a person. Uh, it's actually a store. The store is called a sutler. It's a convenience store. It's like Seven Eleven. Mm-hmm. They set up. They followed the army. There was a guy that like was like, you know, hey, come buy this stuff that's better than your army stuff. Right. And I'm talking about like. Pickles and cigars and eggs and you know Ding dong. cards, yeah, and so that was in a kind of a a way to relieve the men, mm-hmm. but on the downside, the prices were pretty high, okay for, yeah, for yeah, these things, so we had kind of the regular army fair, which is better than the field fair, and also the sutler, uh he came out and interpreted a guy that was its keeper,, mm-hmm. so there was a lot of different dynamics going on just with food. Um,
0: And what actually actually is hardtack? It's just like bread? It's a
1: flour, water. Yeah, I think it's a three to one ratio of flour to to water. And it's cooked? Or Uh it's just like porridge? No, it's a cracker. Yeah, it's it's a cracker. It's a hard cracker. It's like a, you know, three by three cracker.
0: And that tastes good or is it not? I mean, are you like, you just got to be real hungry or...
1: Well the the actual stuff I mean it was so hard that their original artifacts they you know still 150 year old pieces of hardtack that you can go to any museum and find right uh it was incredibly hard they uh you know even for my job I have to explain these different dynamics of like food mm-hmm. you know hardtack is one of them is that the for the north that was the south didn't have hardtack they had biscuits that were round and usually softer but in the north they were mass producing bread of hardtack in factories and then putting them in crates of i think maybe a thousand or more pieces and distributing them among the commissary departments in the army huh. so it was it was not that interesting it was you know flour water and it was so hard that i had to endure the natural elements the soldier might have to be out in the field for, right. you know, two weeks or maybe even a month. It lasts a long time. I mean, uh, like I said, there are pieces that are 150 years old that you can still see in a museum. Sure. So it was it was just standard Army fare.
0: And so know? is there is is the federal government making that or are they buying it?
1: They contracted, they contracted it. Companies, companies. yeah. Wow. And, and then they shipped them in crates.
0: And so would it have been, like, name-branded, you know, like, uh, on... I don't even know if companies name branded like that or if it's uh, like something more like I'm thinking like the, like, like an MRI. They might have, but... The MRI, um, is that the right word? Mm-hmm. Make, it is, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. MRE. MRE, that's yeah. what MRI is when you get, like, go to the doctor. You are ready to eat. Yeah, that's yeah. that's what I was... So it was um, like all green, you know, nondescript package. Right. It was, you know, what I'm talking
1: about. Um, you know, and this is just one component, but the, the fact of the matter is, is that there were you know, three million Union soldiers in Mm -hmm. the entire country. So they had to create enough uh, resource to give it out to them. So I don't think they were that specific. They could be wrong. I mean, they certainly listed, like, you know, this came from Jeff Major's company. Right. But I don't think when it arrived to a soldier in the field, they knew that. Okay. Uh, I think they were mass producing it, just like everything else, just like... Clothes, guns, food—you know, shoes. Sure. The leather gear for your, you know, uh, accoutrements, which have your gunpowder, even bullets and powder.
0: Well, I like guess biscuits in the South then is that more? Because you need eggs and milk to make a biscuit, if I. Yeah. I don't know my recipe. Well, it was exactly.
1: more. It was just a round cracker. It was like okay. hardtack, but it wasn't quite as. Uh, it was a lot softer, from what I understand.
0: And and is that.
1: Um, it's to show you, I think the reason, which is very simple, is that because they didn't have the resources of the North. They weren't stamping out three by three squares. It was just, you know, here's a cracker, make whatever you can. And they usually ended right. up being softer, rounder.
0: So I guess that, so you're saying like the heartache is more industrialized. Yeah. Where, so it's just reflecting their cultures. Right. Um, and then within, uh, I, you know, kind of tie, tying it to Richmond, I mean, we have the huge flower industry. Right. So is that going to affect the North? Are they going to be sh- on a shortage? Because be- it's the largest flower industry in the country at the time.
1: Right, but they weren't, during the Civil War, they weren't trading with the North.
0: Right, so I mean, is the, is the North now in, I mean, they are having trouble finding flour. I don't that- think so. Okay.
1: From what I've recently learned working uh, at Pamplin and what I've taught, been taught recently through my training is that I don't think so. Okay. Because, I mean, we talk about, for one thing, at Pamplin Park, we try to interpret the life of the soldiers and part of that one of our programs is talking about why they fought Mm -hmm. and we you know we have three different things we have like a map of the united states in 1861 we have a map of slavery in the south and the third one is a map of the resources that the troops have for north and south Mm -hmm. so to go on that the north has more factories they had more men they had more ships and to answer your question they had uh uh, they had more land, right? more arable land in the south. A lot of people are under the conception that it looked like, you know, Georgia was a wide open, you know, 500-acre cotton field. But in the north, they equally had the same but more farmland sure. than is often remembered. I mean, the state of Iowa is just like literally all, all corn. Right, right. So, I mean, that was still the same 150 years ago. So they had more... Capabilities, You know, Richmond, of course, was, had one of the largest mills in the world. That doesn't mean that it came from a place that had the largest number of sure. wheat fields in the world. Right. So that's a big difference.
0: And I guess that would make a big difference, because you probably wouldn't want to plant wheat. If you could plant cotton or tobacco, then we're going to make a lot more money. It,
1: right. I mean, you can't eat, um, you can't eat cotton.
0: No, you can't.
1: So, I mean, cotton is marketable in the South, but in the North they had been farming corn, wheat, you know, All those resources that are edible, Mm -hmm. and they had that on their side.
0: Sure, and so I guess uh, I mean obviously neither side gets fed very well. Right, I mean war, so that's hit or miss. If you're getting
1: the field soldiers' fare is typically the same for either side. For the Mm -hmm. southern soldiers, worse, especially as the war went on. Right, they had less and less to eat. Uh, Again, to refer to. A group that I'm familiar with that was cooking lasagna at a 1864 reenactment, one, I doubt they had the supplies to make lasagna, sure. two, they may or may not have eaten lasagna during the Civil War, I don't know, Right. but three, in 1864, at that reenactment, which is a very big one here in Virginia, it's called the Battle of Cedar Creek, mm-hmm. it's in Middletown, Virginia, happens every year, draws out a lot of people, makes a lot of money, is that the Confederate soldier, in that period of the war, and again, this is what differentiates our group from the mainstream groups, is that they're literally eating just poached corn, right. which are kernels dried so much that all you have to do is add them in water.
0: Oof, that sounds so, terrible. So that's
1: what the army under Lee and in the Valley had been eating for 1864 to
0: 1865 till its so, end. I mean, is that any good? I mean, you ate that. I mean, is that like, are you like...
1: No, it's not good. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> That's the reality is that yeah. are the real authentic groups they can deal with that. that is sure. just what you're get you were given hundred fifty years ago as a confederate soldier right and that is you'll be all right right, and that's what you put up with
0: yeah, they survived after how long and
1: I think what really kind of has um has has become more apparent as i've been doing the hobby longer is that the soldiers that were in the battlefield they weren't, and even they would probably. Realized that it was not the war that they had started with. Things got progressively serious, more serious. And I think things, as a soldier in life, in the Army, was a stark realization to a country boy that was, you know, 20 years from, had seen nowhere, that it was rough. Sure. That it was bad food, you marched 10 miles a day, you had these clothes that were not perfect, they, you know, are itchy, scratchy, they're not mm-hmm. your civilian clothes. And that you have to realize that you're fight, about to fight a battle, and death is a possibility. Absolutely. So I think that's true of, of, of how uh, kind of serious, authentic groups try to interpret that. It's a lot different than a lot of the groups, for instance, at Cedar Creek.
0: Sure. And I mean, I guess you mentioned that the marching, I mean, there, you know, that, that different, difference in the culture, the North is getting um, pre-made industrial, factory-made outfits. Right. Um, the South, I mean, who's making them? Are they making them in the field?
1: The, the, the general but most sincere answer is women. Yeah. Women in the North and the South, they were making stuff. If you go to a museum, Tredegar here in Richmond, any Civil War museum, Pamplin, wherever, usually what you're looking at was made by a woman.
0: But, I mean, is this, um, are are they somewhat uh, man-powered factories where a woman's just sitting there making outfits all day? She probably
1: had a supervisor that was male. Okay, so it
0: was like, but it is, but it's not like, uh, you know, your mom is making it for you or your wife. No, I I think
1: that's a little glorified. It was hard, for one thing, if you think about it, to get mail to the troops. Yeah, sure, sure. Your wife could have knitted you a pair of socks. Doesn't mean it's going to make it to your camp. Right. Which is, you know, if you're from Wisconsin and you're fighting in Virginia, that's a package that's traveling, you know, 3,000 miles. Sure. Is it going to make it there or not? depends on whether the battle is happening. Right. Because your supply lines could be cut. So I think it is a sort of misnomer where we see films and and such of a woman sewing and and she's doing it for her hubby in the field. It doesn't mean that it's getting to him.
0: And and is the um, are they standardized? Because it seems like that's like seems to be something that I was a surprised if you, you know, especially in the movies, it's there's the blue and the gray, right? I mean, but there's not they're not all wearing that outfit. I guess more in the north it seems like they are. In the
1: north, I mean, they have both sides have regulations. They uh-huh. have clothing standards that are written by the army, and if you've read them like I have, they're to the T. They're like you gotta have nine buttons on your coat. You get for dress parade, you have to have a black hat with. You know, your insignia, and depending on who your officer is, it they may be a hard ass on whether it looks good or not. Right. Because you're not going to step in front of Abraham Lincoln in your worst field battle clothes. Sure. You're going to wear whatever the colonel or higher-ups say that you have to maintain. So there are regulations. I mean, we typically, like you said, think of the blue and the gray. Mm-hmm. but it's very loosely defined term in reality. Right. Uh, in the north, they're able to keep up with like everyone having the standard blue coat, mm-hmm. which we call a fatigue blouse. I think most people think of that dark blue and then the sky blue pants. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the south, the gray, they all wish they could have had gray, but that really is not what they're wearing. Right. Uh, it's a type of cloth which my reenactment group uh, really tries to show in large number because of the variation in color. Uh, Mm -hmm. It could be gray, but it could be sandy brown. Mm -hmm. It could be dark blue. It just depends on sort of what uh, I would say the time period is. Sure. Uh, Because they started off with, even in the north in 1861, again, it's a war that's going to take 30 days, maybe 60 days, and then it's going to be over. Right. So coming from earlier eras, like a lot of the troops had recalled during the war in Europe, where they had these immensely elaborate European uniforms. Mm-hmm. It's not something you'd wear in, in combat, but it's something that looked flashy and showy. You go off, you throw in your army, they fight for maybe a couple hours, and then they leave the battlefield. Right. So in 1861, they had the same mindset. You know, The Battle of Manassas is a great example here in the east, in Virginia, because... There are Confederate troops, for instance, my group portrayed the Second Mississippi. We researched the Second Mississippi's uniform at First Manassas or, or Bull Run. They were wearing red shirts and like black cocked hats, like the Revolutionary War. Right. And right. Then went into battle with old antique guns, like mm-hmm. flintlocks. Sure. So that obviously changed. I would suspect the Second Mississippi, as the war went on, were starting to standardize and go more like the gray coat. Right uh, from Richmond or from whatever uh, depot they were drawing their uniforms. Sure. From. So. Uh,
0: and, and would have they would they have been made here? Oh in yeah, in the city. I mean, is the, do you know of any place that was the pattern in our, building in at Tredegar? At Tredegar, where okay. I work, and that's where that's. Um, I mean, they're making uniforms there.
1: They were making the fabric because okay. it was the Crenshaw Woolen Mill. Okay. So the mill there, which there were 19 different looms on the two floors in our visitor center, Mm -hmm. you know, minus all the exhibits, there was just machines and powered by water that spun wool. Right. So they would, at the end of the day, have yards and yards and yards of cloth, and then they sent that to a different building in Richmond, which was called the Clothing Bureau, and then there were people there that cut out the pattern, started sewing, put it together, And then at the end of the day, you maybe got paid 50 cents for, you know, your pile of coats. Right. So, you know, women, it's interesting. We don't think about them a lot, but they're the ones that are making all this stuff because the men are fighting.
0: Right, and is is there any indication where the cloth is being sent, like where is it made? It? I mean, it gets
1: sent all over,
0: I mean I mean but like you said, somewhere there's another place in the city, that the gets jacket
1: sent. gets oh the
0: cloth itself, yeah, I mean it's, I mean not you don't have to know like, the the address, but I mean like is it it's still in the slip or in the bottom somewhere it's the right Richmond clothing
1: bureau, I don't okay. know where their actual building is is mm-hmm. I haven't looked at that seriously, but it was a governmental building,
0: right, sure, yeah, so
1: mm-hmm. from there they were making the uniforms, right at Tredegar. But more specifically, Crenshaw. Not you know, Crenshaw was independent of the armworks; had nothing to do with the ironworks. Mm-hmm. It was just I, in that It building. was just a mill, mm-hmm. yeah. So they were operating inside the Tredegar complex uh, as an independent business. Right. So that fabric is what they were making on the nineteen looms in there. Um, a more specific example in the north, for example, is Schuylkill Arsenal, which is in Philadelphia or near Philadelphia, and the way it worked was. In their complex, it was totally a uniform operation. They got the fabric and then they distributed in like kits, cut out kits to the p- women in Richmond. So a guy would carry the fabric literally in a basket, drop it off and say, finish this, I'm coming back at five. <laughs> no. And then he'd come back and there'd be a coat nice. that the woman made. And they'd go door to door to door and the women would assemble. You see these great pictures, you can find them almost anywhere. Of maybe five or ten women sewing together sure because it was just you know one they were helping the cause but two they could probably say you know keep up on news by having being together in a group of friends right like where's your husband what's the last news you heard and then it's a very I think methodical sort of not really uh, uh, concentrated in your mind effort of just rhythmically sewing and and you know just making something sure uh, I would believe that a woman probably individually was like an assembly line someone was making the sleeves and then someone mm-hmm. was putting mm-hmm. the buttons on and someone was making the buttonholes for it right and then uh, you know I would suspect that it probably went in a circle like that yeah um, so I mean that's the case for, for all the army stuff mm-hmm.
0: and so that's northern that's in the North, North-
1: Schuylkill yeah. yeah is in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania right uh, there's actually a highway that cuts across of the south of Pennsylvania, called the Schuylkill Highway, and it was near there. And the,
0: um, I mean, like buttons and stuff are crazy. I mean, where, who's making buttons, like especially in the south? I mean, and I mean it's all, all little, of
1: this, whatever it is, it's all contracted.
0: Yeah. So I mean, I mean, but it seems like, a, um, I mean, where are they even making buttons out of? You know, it seems like a, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's so much talk about how much trouble you know at Tredegar trying to get enough iron and you know brass and stuff. I mean, it seems like to make a button. While they don't have zippers, I understand that, but it seems, I mean, you got to keep your pants up somehow, but...
1: <sighs> well, I think what's interesting, if you go to the MOC, they had a, the Museum of the Confederacy, they had a great exhibit on it, was how the South created uh, different substitutes, is the word. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, I know for a fact in Richmond, when they were unable to get or make brass buttons, they started making them out of wood. In fact, two brothers in Richmond, by the name of Gibson, were contracted by the Clothing Bureau just to make hundreds of thousands of wood buttons. How about that? So just the material, wood, is yeah. not as costly as brass. Right, sure, sure. So that's how they dealt with that. Uh, they dealt with food shortages in that way. You know, you hear about it all the time, how people in Richmond, you know, as the war dragged on, they had no supplies coming, or very little, and they started to do whatever they could. I mean, I think a classic one is the coffee substitute in the South, Mm -hmm. which is just really finely grained sweet potatoes. They didn't have coffee uh, leaves, so -hmm. they had to create something just to, you know, it doesn't taste the same, but it's something as a substitute that, at least in, in your mind, I guess, might be considered coffee.
0: Right. I I actually read somewhere as well about. uh, the 17th and Main Street, there actually was a um, a coffee factory there mm-hmm. where they tried to make this tea. It was coffee that was... Uh, it's, and it apparently still grows, like around your wild. It's a type of tea that's highly caffeinated. Um, and they tried it for a while, but it made people sick. So it ended up burning, and they were like, eh. Um, but in well, apparently, um, the north... I mean, I mean, you may know the details better, but apparently made uh, the first instant coffee by drying, basically just like boiling coffee and milk until it okay. powdered. And then you could just heat it up. And like, because um, it's a weird thing. You know, I, I, I never, before I read that, I never really thought about how big of a problem it is. Like if you, you know, in the South they have tons of tobacco, the North they have tons of coffee. Um, both you want, right? I mean, you're you're addicted to either one. You're going to want it. Right, um,
1: so it may not have been, I think, an addiction in the, you know the actual coffee term, but maybe the mind was thinking, "Well, the sweet potato tastes." Like that it. might do it. Yeah, you know? uh,
0: but they apparently, you know, they had to combat the problem that if all these people have coffee and you are bored, you are not doing. You know, I suppose you're in the winter. Um, you know what? I don't know. If you have ten thousand men, you know, you now have what five thousand fires they are now giving your physician away.
1: The environment was in our state was completely changed i think that's another thing uh to recall is that the shortages affected the people the troops in a way that you know to continue on fighting the war which i do you know in their mind they in their in their thinking their ideologies they really wanted to finish for either side until the very end is that it ended up being affecting people in the sense of not only is the army not going to give you enough if you're in the south so you have to compensate that with substitutes but also the land is going to provide that as well Mm -hmm. so the army very loosely very early on even was saying you could forage is the term for food which means you could be authorized by the army to have a party that goes out in the countryside takes other people's food because Mm -hmm. remember most of 19th century america is working on a farm right and then you bring it back to your regiment sure and you know it's 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 uh, like you
0: find a hog that just happened to be inside a fence and and it's in the
1: name of the country sure it's you're saying you know sir ma'am your cattle this is now ours for the good of the troops and we're fighting for your ability to be here Mm Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was something else that the Army did as well. And, you know, I think it's great when I go to the kids and you explain to them, well, they had coffee and they had a tack, but imagine what happens when you come across a farm. What can you get from there? And then you have 50 different answers coming from these kids, you know. Right. Chickens, milk, you know, vegetables, fruits. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Mm-hmm. With the Army, it's not that diverse of a menu. So, I mean, the the people were providing that and you know to give you know a lot of people think of Sherman as as whatever you want but when his troops marched through Georgia not only were they making it a message to the people of the south that this is what happens when you support the enemy but two, we're taking your food as a a demand for the army uh, to keep the troops you know literally alive because the army food was pretty nasty I mean we're not They weren't thinking about nutritional values and vitamin C. Right. Like the MREs today, they're loaded with calories. I mean, I think I had a friend in the Marine Corps that told me that one meal has 1,000 calories. Right. Maybe more. Mm -hmm. So you eat three of those, you got 3,000 calories going in. And these guys that are now in the military that are serving, I mean, they're huge. Because they're eating a high-calorie diet. Soldiers 150 years ago during the Civil War, even earlier in the revolution, they did not have those calorie-based foods in general. Sure. So, you know, it's it's a big difference in terms of eating habits. And a lot of the troops got sick because
0: of that. And since they have, um, you know, uh, you know, it sounds like pre-made, you know, especially the hard tack, I mean, the beans, I'm assuming someone prepares, is there, are there military cooks? Yeah. I mean, are they, and and what kind of stuff are they actually cooking? You just heat up beans? Well, they're, or,
1: they're whole departments.
0: Um, I mean, that are traveling with the armies.
1: Yeah, we often. I mean, that's another thing that's hard to imagine. But the army is not just men with guns marching. Sure. It consists of thousands of wagons of supplies. It consists of a a regimental blacksmith that and they shoot and a uh, uh, a farrier that puts on the horseshoes to all of the horses, the cattle, the cavalry has horses. Right. So, I mean, there are people... It's an entire city, as one soldier described, that is moving through the the Virginia countryside. Yeah. Or in the west as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was not a small operation. It was a huge, huge feat. That's why these armies were always near a road or a river or railroads, as Ed Barrs liked to say in his R's, river, roads, and rail. Uh, they were always near somewhere that was able to have transportation quickly sure because the troops not only had to get to a battle quickly they had to have all their stuff with them yeah yeah so it's very rare to hear about an uh, an operation that was not sort of accessible very quickly yeah I mean Manassas was near a junction you know Richmond is a city Petersburg is a city mm-hmm. the valley has roads that goes up the, through it you know mm-hmm. so they fought along that yeah um, you know there's not that many battles in, in Missouri. Right. There's a few, but not that many. Or in Arizona, there's mm-hmm. one, uh, Glorieta Pass. But, I mean, they didn't fight their battles in the middle of nowhere.
0: Sure. And so, um, I, this is going to be totally random, but do you, have you come across any menus? I mean, any uh, um, recipes? Well, like, any uh. Recipes, like the chef?
1: Yeah, there's no real formal recipe as far as I'm aware. Maybe someone okay. not more knowledgeable about the commissary department might know. But you do read a lot about the soldiers in their diaries about how they were preparing things. Hmm. I mean, the ramrod and bayonets became great cooking implements as opposed to tools. Right. Because you could wrap your meat around it and skewer it on the fire. And, you know, it would be better than trying to come up with something else. Sure. And... Uh, and I think the bayonet is a great example because we often you know, look at it and you think of it as a, you know, a, a weapon that punctures, but the soldiers found that really offensive in the sense that it was gruesome, and they really, I think it's like 1% of Civil War, known Civil War casualties were from bayonets, it was right. extremely rare, mm-hmm. although you see it in pictures and whatnot, but I mean, the bayonet became a cooking tool, sure, because it was way too graphic.
0: And what, um, it's also maybe, it's maybe a random question, but do you, I know what people are, and I don't know why I'm suddenly like all over food, but like what becomes like staples in the city? Cause I'm just, you know, if the folks in the, um, in the field are eating garbage, right. And I know there's bread riots, um, and the whole thing, I mean, what is a normal, they're not going, you know, I'm assuming the tavern's menu is getting limited because, you know, I mean, I don't know if you've looked at that at all or.
1: Yeah, I mean probably. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the people, you know, in interpreting life at Pamplin, which has a recreated plantation home, Mm -hmm. which by Southern standards is over 100 acres and, excuse me, over 100, uh, yeah, over 100 acres and at least 20 slaves classifies a home as a plantation, which Pamplin has one, Tudor Hall. You look at that...
0: No slaves yet, though. No slaves (laughs) anymore? anymore. No. There's no slaves. There's not even a
1: slave interpreter, so we have to do that end. But there's also a recreated small farmer cabin just down on the bottom of the hill. Okay. So most of 19th century America lives in a cabin Mm -hmm. that is probably as, as wide as this room and a dirt floor, and they're eating pretty much the same thing, which is meat in some form, Mm -hmm. you know, bacon or beef, and then a handful of cornmeal. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what 19th century America was eating. Right. In the city, you had certainly more diverse choices, but, I mean, most of America is not living in a city. They live on a farm. Right. I mean, Richmond is one of the biggest cities in the South, but that doesn't mean that's how life is like for everyone.
0: Sure, Um, sure. For most people. Well, I'm sure just outside of, I mean... You know, 10 miles outside of the city, I'm sure. So
1: so I would suspect, to answer your question, the average soldier in the field, it wasn't really that different anyway. Oh, really? As far as eating. I mean, they were used to that. They're used to not knowing different ethnic foods like we do now. Right, right. They lived very simple food fair. Sure. Um, You know, probably ate from very simple materials, like wood bowls and maybe a metal fork. But I mean, you know, it's not elaborate. It's extremely simple.
0: Right. It's country living, as they say. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, now again, that's the common soldier, which mm-hmm. Pamplin really likes to tell. The officers, it's different because you read about, for instance, what McClellan or Jeb Stewart right, came exactly. across in their battles outside Richmond, which uh-huh. I've researched. And, um, you know, a great story is how one of Jeb Stewart's Officers who was actually a German. He wasn't even from here, but was fighting with him. He got trapped in America. He came across one of McClellan's stores east of Richmond, and he said he suddenly smelled something, a smoke that was very interesting to him, and he couldn't quite figure out what it was. And as he rode closer, it was Havana cigars that McClellan had brought in boxes along with him. Wow. Along with, he names other things, jams, jellies, oysters. Wow. Um, you know, you name it and Champagne he came across uh, He actually took a bottle of champagne and drank it that night And he said it was one of the best drinks he ever had but. So I mean, that was That was, uh, you know, an example of how Officers were privileged with a little better mm-hmm. Even the tenting, you know They had wall tents, not little small shelter halves Like sure. the privates So life could be better for those higher up, certainly You know? Right So even that is different
0: uh, well, I'm sure Stuart as well. I mean, he was doing so much of the, uh, the foraging. Um, right. So, I mean, I'm sure you, you know, if you stole it, you might, you know, grab a cheeky piece of something or other, you know, at least. But you know, really it gets me is the uh, drinking,
1: which I find fascinating. Yeah. Because both armies at one point outlaw drinking in some form. Huh. But if you've read Greg Kimball's book in Richmond, He really nails home how much the figures, and I wish I knew them off the top of my head, how much Richmonders were drinking before the Civil War. It was quite a bit. Yeah. And we're not talking about, like, you know, Cosmos. I mean, they're (laughs) drinking, like, hard whiskey and hard cider and, like, uh, brandy. So the troops obviously go into the war in 1861 with the same sort of mentality of Bad habits. Yeah. Um, And keep in mind, it's not like you see on TV or in pictures of a guy with a huge white beard. I mean, they're 20. Mm -hmm. They're as old as I am. Sure. So they have, you know, the evils of, you know, drinking following them along when you're a young person trying to figure out the world, too.
0: Yeah. And you're not, you know, a lot of the time you're not doing anything. So you're just sitting around. Right. You're in camp. I
1: think it's for every 30 days there's one battle. Wow. So you're spending twenty nine days sitting in a camp, mm-hmm. or marching. It's not, it's and, not a battle every day.
0: And so, um, I mean, what kind of drinks? Would I mean, what kind of drinks are they getting in the battlefield?
1: Well, that's the question. How does it show up in the battlefield? Because the army isn't giving it to them.
0: Do they ever? Because cause, the settler is one way. Well, the because um, I know original. You know, Washington. You know, in the Revolution. They would train people in liquor. Um, I think, I'm going to say Jackson, I mean, um, I want to say Andrew Jackson outlawed that. Mm -hmm. Um, But so, I mean, there's no liquor ration at all during the war, okay? And so, yeah, so these guys are bringing...
1: You got to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why the farms are, when you forage, I'm sure they went straight to their stores of spirits um, Hmm. to get that as well. And, you know, they drank a lot. Uh, there's some excellent accounts which you can find from either the north or the south about some form of of something like that. Um, you know, my favorite one that I came across uh, when we did Gaines Mill in what was it be two years ago, uh, to, uh, 2012, mm-hmm. was coming across. We portrayed the 4th Texas, which was in a unit that fought at Gaines Mill. They were all from Austin, Texas. But they had to come from Western Virginia, Stanton, mm-hmm. to Richmond in order to make the battle. Mm-hmm. And on that march from the valley, uh, there was a story told by one of their privates where a guy came across Applejack near the University of Virginia on their march to Richmond. And, right. and <laughs> he apparently got very drunk and talked to Stonewall Jackson while he was drunk, <laughs> oh, which no. is not the best idea. Right. But I guess he got himself so good that... That he had trouble there, and I probably got punished for it. I imagine. But uh, so I mean, they would acquire it on their marches, you know, finding it from the people. I'm sure. sure. Um, But for all intents and purposes, I mean, pretty much the army's provost or their what we would call today military police, they banned it from the camps. Huh. So you could be punished for 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 bad behavior, not just drinking, but gambling was a common punishment. We do that at Pamplin. We we try to point out someone that's a card shop, of course, and joking, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, we throw them up uh, on top of a stoop and make them wear a sign that says, Gambler, <laughs> and then have everyone laugh at them. Uh, right. So, I mean, there's certainly, the Army has rules and restrictions, which I think, you forget about in the movies, you know. Sure. Is that they had standards, they had expectations from the troops when you signed the paper saying, I'm a soldier right. and fighting for the North or the South. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there was a lot of punishments, and, um, you know, the, the few instances that I've come across from accounts, to what really comes out to people is the executions that the Army permitted. Mm mm-hmm. um, was that was the obviously the harshest level of punishment was right. executing people. And you could do that... To, would say the most common one was for desertion. Right. If you ran away because of whatever reason um, and they caught you, they would bring you back, they would dig a hole, make you stand in front of it, and a firing squad from a company came out by probably 10 people. And before they shot you and executed you, they drummed the entire army out onto the parade field, you know, maybe 20,000 troops to say this is what the punishment is for you running away. Right. So, again, these enforcements are actually what kept them in the army hmm. um, because of, of you know, the necessary, you know, army regulations to do that. They right. They wanted to keep the troops there because they had an objective, whatever that was, to hmm. fight a battle, sure. to win the war, whatever you want to say right so they really you know I think what is great about working at Pamplin is you say the food was bad the uniform was warm the guns heavy you know there's punishments but the troops still stayed on the battlefield for right. the most part they didn't run away hmm. they stayed to show up at Gettysburg and they stayed to show up to surrender at Appomattox. for the most part they really a lot of Confederates deserted um, in 65 but I mean they stayed Right. Is the the greater lesson of one of our programs. Huh. Is that for all the hardships that they endured, the troops still, you know, were committed to, one, doing what they were supposed to do in the army, but two, I really, in their minds, believe, think that they were committed to the very end for either side about whatever that cause was.
0: Right. And, you you know, it's funny because you actually mentioned that there were no um, slave reenactors. But the. Do you guys, when you guys go out and do battles? Because I'm assuming the Confederates had slaves, you know, that were in the armies. I mean, do people actually come out and do that?
1: In my group, in a couple of instances,
0: we have had had African-American
1: members come out to portray life for one side or the other. We've done both. Um, In either case, they're not interpreting the life of a soldier. They're interpreting the life of... uh, Usually, something less than that, like a cook, mm-hmm. or an ad, uh, an aide for an officer, his servant, as they called them, for either the North or the South, they had what they called servants, and right. they were just they were doing privileged stuff like washing clothes and cooking food and you know helping with the supply wagons. I'm not saying that they wouldn't have made good soldiers. I'm saying that's the capacity that they served in. They didn't put a gun in their hands right. and say, "You're off to fight the enemy." Um, so we have had some small-scale uh, African-American uh, folks come out to do that, um, at a couple of reenactments, which is kind of unique. I don't think they necessarily mind, because I think that role is important to them. I certainly
0: think it is. Um, well, it's a different... There's a, there's a lot more romance that you can put into being a soldier than to being uh, an enslaved person.
1: Yeah, it's certainly... Um, right, I think it's not as... It's probably not as glorious in the sense of of those mm-hmm. those values that white soldiers have, but it's still nonetheless uh, something that's important. I would say right. to to the to, to people I know that reenact that sort of person. Um, and then there, but there are other examples of of you know like the Fifty Fourth Massachusetts, which was in the movie Glory, right. and they were an all black regiment. Sure, um, Richmond boasts several. Uh, of what they called the United States Colored Troops, which are designated African American regiments, mm-hmm. so it wasn't a state endeavor. It was you're fighting for the national government right. as a black soldier, mm-hmm. um, and again, fourteen of them got the Medal of Honor right outside of Richmond for one battle. So I mean, there are instances, you know. I think I think altogether in the Army and the Navy, I think it's it's something like two hundred thousand African Americans uh, enlisted. Mm-hmm. So I mean they're certainly a large part of that whole equation. Sure. Um, and yet the story for them is very different history. Absolutely. They they have different values than white soldiers do. So
0: And it's also um not obvious for someone listening, but I mean, you're not white. You're Korean Korean. Right. Korean, mm-hmm. Korean right? Yep. Yeah. So I mean, are there Korean soldiers? Are we I mean is this is that part of it you just kinda I
1: don't think go with it? There aren't that many uh, as far as I've come across, I haven't found an example of a Korean soldier, but there's certainly Asian Americans that fought for both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, when I first started with that Living History group, I was specifically portraying a Chinese uh, descended soldier that was from that was enlisted with a New York regiment, which was the Seventieth New York. Wow. So I had a very specific example mm-hmm. of that. Um, which it you know just in general, I think that's how a lot of people probably have heard of me or know me in the reenacting community is is that very specific uh, identity and portrayal. So the Asian guy, yeah, there aren't that many, yeah. <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> no,
0: I mean, I, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I think most people would assume that it's a very Anglo-Saxon and um, it was job or thing hobby. I, I would suspect probably more Southern as well. Yeah. Um,
1: and you know. it, and it is. I yeah. mean, it was. It's not a disservice to anyone yeah. in my group because that's really how it is. I mean, it'd be one thing if there were, you know, 50 of me showing up to a right, reenactment.
0: Right. Like an entire Asian right. um, Like army, like 100,000.
1: But I think I'm very unique in the sense of where my interests are and who I am as a person in general, that that's not necessarily, uh, I guess you might call it an issue mm-hmm. uh, you know, I don't think it really is um it isn't as far as I'm aware, but i mean it's it's a unique component uh that people absolutely. probably know me by
0: yeah, absolutely,
1: and the fact that i that I've spent a lot good part of my life to learn about that subject yeah sure um so you know I think it's interesting in itself is that you know all of the civil war history is just really diverse i mean you know there's just there's so many components to it that it makes a very unique experience um you know i think in reenacting just going back to the hobby um you know it's the little things that you really even i've done it after 9 years you, you appreciate mm-hmm. um you know the battles don't do it for me anymore to be honest i don't look forward to a battle anymore reenactment because to me they're all the same right um you do your job you do your formations your maneuvers in your group You fire your gun, and it's pretty much the same experience after nine years. Sure. Um, You know, it's one thing, you know, certainly in numbers, if you're facing, you know, like at Gettysburg last year, I don't know how many thousands of reenactors. So that's interesting. But for me, these days, it's really the little things. I mean, uh, going back to the event which I showed you pictures of at Point Lookout, uh, I came and I spoke with another long time. A friend of mine in the group is that it was that night on Saturday when we were in the barracks and my group was putting on the skits for the night the different shows and there's no electricity it's pitch black out at Point Lookout Maryland but you have maybe 20 candles lighted up and people that are doing different acts on the main stage mm-hmm. with all your friends around you in uniform that it I told him and he said the same thing that it's like wow I wish. Wish I could get people that are not, uh, that don't know what we do in the hobby to come here right now and see why we're doing what we're doing.
0: Right. And so that would have been pretty normal for um, folks to be doing like talent shows?
1: It was, um, I mean, it happened. I don't know if it was regularly. Okay. But, I mean, it was common to have acts uh, within your companies, uh, you know, on either side doing something for fun. Mm -hmm. It was just... Relief from monotony of life, relief from drilling, which my group does a lot. I think we drill for about four hours the entire day. So, I mean, it's a relief just to have fun with your buddies. Yeah, sure. We had one guy that that read Julius Caesar, uh, Shakespeare. That's very common for the soldiers to read Shakespeare. Uh, We had the sutler guy come out, and I hope I'm not ratting him out, but he did a minstrel show with one of his apprentices. Mm -hmm. So the kid came out in blackface, and I'm not saying that this is, you know, we're laughing at it in the modern sense, like, I can't believe he's doing this, but to them it was common to portray African-American folks in a very sort of comical way. Right, sure. Um, So they had all the period slang from a minstrel skit, Mm -hmm. and it was was hilarious. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen, uh, laughing at the fact that we were doing something that dated. Sure. Not, of course... And any derogative term to how probably they interpreted right, that. Sure. But uh we had someone do that, we had, we sang uh songs that period songs like the Battle Hymn of the Republic mm-hmm. um and and uh Hardtack Come Again No More. Mm-hmm. So I mean those are the experiences for me after doing it for nine years that you're like you look around and you're like there's nothing modern here. We're all wearing completely authentic uniforms Drinking from period bottles, right we're eating period food. We're doing period skits. Yeah. And you get to that point where it's just like, you know, wow, I'm in that one window where it feels like nothing is modern Sure, um, sure. I think that's what's one of the beauties of reenacting that I don't get right, lost in it Yeah, that I don't think modern um, that most people not modern I think most people don't understand is just the ability to um, Find departure from from everyday life and mm-hmm. just live simply or, yeah you know not you know it probably wasn't simple to them, but simply in the fact that there's no ringing phones that you don't check your email every morning that you don't you know right. have to you know pop something in a microwave and there 's your dinner, the fact that you have to you know really be labor intensive about sure. it um I think that interests me mm-hmm. in the sense of reenacting
0: uh past history yeah' that's it's cool. finding
1: that departure to just to just for a weekend get away and do something like that.
0: So if somebody else wants to reenact, how do they get involved with that?
1: Well, I think uh, in my group, it's, uh, like I said, a very particular knowledge. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty easy to see who's really interested in something and who isn't because they wouldn't be in my group. Right. My group is, uh, not to flaunt ourselves, but we're very, you know, authentic. And like I said, some people can do it. They can march 10 miles and eat that army food. Other mainstream groups can't, and so they do their own thing, mm-hmm. like I said, I have nothing against them because that's their weekend, that's how they want to spend it their time sure um, but it's not the mindset that I had right. to be fair on myself when I began right um it changed right um, sure, because I think you really have an affinity for those people in in doing it yourself, sure, um, I think most people probably say that you know. You don't. You try to come as close to as as you can. You don't ever say that you're a soldier because we're not. Right. In reality, as authentic as my group is, we're not. Right. Like I said, drinking would have been banned last weekend at the barracks. Right. But it happened. Sure. So you know we're not saying that you don't ever say that you're exactly like they were. Right. You just hope, and I think it's true for people more so that have descendants Mm -hmm. uh, of the war. Uh, you just say, I wish I could come close to enduring the experience that they did because it was so much more apparent to them. Sure. Um, so you just hope that you find that window yeah. of uh, of understanding, right. I think, is, is the best way. And like I said, for me, it's not the battles. For other people, it is. Sure. It can be. Um, right. But for me, it's not. So, you know.
0: And I guess one thing I always wondered, like, as far as the battles go... Um, cause I got We got to get to get out of here in a second. But yeah. um, how do you choose who dies? <laughs> that's a very I've common seen, question. I've always seen it. Like everyone just says, "I don't like dies all at the same time." Like the battle's not very good, is it? Well,
1: in reenacting, that's the other half of the term acting.
0: Yeah, you have
1: to kind of see, you know, where your situation lies, and then make that conscious decision to to go down okay and and say that you know ah, they got me you know it's just sort of um, it's just sort of you have to re find that moment to recreate it um you know i just watched a show on um national geographic i think that had that component as you know the 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 death on the battlefield mm-hmm. and uh you know i think a good reenactor probably has a really elaborate thought out thing um uh, to give myself away I really try to loosen my hat up just a little bit and then when you go forward and you you know you really sort of jolt your head the hat goes flying off sure and that's you know you go backwards because the impact from a bullet is at some you know hundred miles per hour at you and Mm -hmm. it's a 58 caliber so it's like the size of a desert eagle Mm -hmm. a pistol in our sort of comparison sure so I mean you know, there, and I, I think probably that's also what doesn't attract me is, is, is that, that trying to make it glorious, because it really wasn't. I mean, right. In any war, it's a 20-year-old kid sitting, at least at the end of the Civil War, in a trench. And he probably just didn't realize it, and, and he made the wrong choices and ended his life. Sure. Uh, you know, it's a very serious business. You know, reenactments, of course, you have to play along. Right. Um, but there are so many components in a battle that we conveniently don't have, and death is one of them. Sure. Um, it was awful. I mean, they really saw some horrible violence from, you know, what we say at Pamplin. Uh, one soldier described as pink mist from artillery barrage right. means that the guy got blown up and there was nothing left of them. Um, yeah. I mean, it's not glorious. It's I mean, not good at all. That's again something else you find in reenacting is that it's. You know, the food's not glorious. The uniform's not glorious. The story that you learned in third grade is not glorious uh, sure. in reality. It's a very serious business. I think that's probably another difference, MicroPaz, is the seriousness that these people were just like us, completely different mindset perhaps, but they were still people, human, you know, individuals nonetheless. And they, in a large sense, because it's war, they suffered. Right. So I think, as I explained to someone, Um, who asked me, um, you know, it's it's that realization that, you know, if you're serious about it, it's war. It's not war, you know, in the terms of being, uh, you know, for the most part, uh, this wonderful display of history. It's war in the sense of that this was a modern war where they did have machine guns and they did have trench assaults. And it started to turn into, like, what you see in Europe. Sure. during World War I so I mean that's a very serious business You just look at any picture of the dead at Gettysburg or Petersburg or Antietam there are 20 bodies lined out in the picture and you know in for instance one Antietam picture there's a hand literally just by itself mm-hmm. just sitting there Sure. or someone at a trench in Petersburg that is 20 but has a beard that's huge and unfortunately he got hit right in the head right. and you see what the effect was and its gruesomeness. I mean, the pictures don't lie.
0: Sure. So. Well, I think we're gonna have to uh, kill the conversation. Is we that, do. There's just so much. Is that a bad way to end with a pun? Um, so yeah. Um, but thanks. I appreciate you sitting down with me. And, yeah. Uh, that was it. Thank you very much, Jason. Hope everybody enjoyed that. Let me know what you think on Facebook, uh, Twitter at History Replays, uh, Tumblr. Also on Pinterest. And, uh, you know, if you, if you did enjoy the show, which if you've made it this far, I'm sure you did, uh, write a review for us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you listen to podcasts, tell your mom, tell your friends, support the podcast. That'd be awesome. You can donate at historyreplaystoday.org and make it a great day.